Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, reading from verse 12 through the end of the chapter. I don't know what the title of my sermon is. So if you listen closely enough, maybe you can think of one. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12, God's holy word, inerrant and infallible, spoken through the power of the Spirit. He gives it to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're a baseball purist or a fan of the history of baseball, this past 12 months we've seen uh, the earthly life of many Hall of Famers, legends, uh, come to an end. And this past week's probably Perhaps the most noteworthy, Hank Aaron, died. Considered still by most to be the home run king, I I hate to tell you if that is your mindset, but there is a man named Barry Bonds who hit seven more home runs than Hank Aaron in his career. But that's a discussion, a conversation for another day. But he was, Hank Aaron, was an American hero. He helped bring the country together around our favorite pastime. He did endure much horrible treatment uh, through racism, especially when it became apparent that he would pass Babe Ruth's record. Babe Ruth, probably one of the only legends who is more 
well-known than Hank Aaron. But he helped bring the country together. He was well-loved, even though he had uh, many difficult things to endure. He excelled on the brightest stage. He enjoyed the chance to play in front of millions of adoring fans throughout his career. And so it's humbling when we see these kinds of lives, the lives of, of legends, lives of people who seemed larger than life, humbling when we're reminded of their mortality. Hank Aaron leaves behind quite a story, but he met the same end that we all face. Even the most successful lives, filled with achievements that we admire, filled with achievements that we continue to talk about for generations, we are forced to still recognize and admit that mortality, the reality of this world, and for our uses today, the teaching and the life of Jesus and his kingdom towers over even these lives, over every life. The teaching of Jesus, the truth and the reality of his kingdom and of his reign towers over every human life. And since that is true, And if we believe that to be true, then we must recognize and submit to the reality of the kingdom of Christ. We must bring our lives into conformity with the reality of this kingdom. And we must do so by the power that God supplies by his grace. So first this morning, we must recognize the kingdom through repentance. We must recognize the kingdom through repentance. Secondly, we must live by the call of the kingdom through self-denial. And thirdly, we must rejoice in the prior grace of the kingdom. First, we must recognize the nearness of the kingdom through repentance. Uh, We have this prophetic fulfillment formula at the beginning of our passage this morning. We've seen that in Matthew Matthew is showing his readers, showing his audience, Jesus is the Christ of God. Why is it wise to listen to his words? Why is it wise to believe in him? Why is it wise to submit to him? Because he is sent to us from God the Father, the fulfillment of the plan of all of redemptive history. And he shows that in the way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. And so uh, we have... This fulfillment from Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus goes to Galilee when John the Baptist is arrested. That's not necessarily that Jesus is avoiding danger, but rather that his ministry is moving into a new phase. There was a little bit of early, early ministry in Galilee. And then as we read in John 3, the beginning of John 4, Jesus goes down to Judea. That's where he interacts with Nicodemus. And then here is what many people consider to be kind of the the beginning point of his public ministry. But there are things that happened before that. But he goes to Galilee, the region in the north, the region where he has spent most of his life. Galilee is in the north of Palestine, as we mentioned. It's a region at that time probably would have been considered uh, the the landmass of it. Probably about 50 miles north to south, 25 miles east to west. The historian Josephus points out about a generation after Jesus' earthly life that Galilee had over 200 cities and over 15,000 inhabitants. It was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, a substantial number of both. And this is why those who are down in Judea, in the heart of uh, of what we would consider Israel, down by Jerusalem, there was a lot of disdain for Galilee 
and for Galileans, the Jews who lived in Galilee, because they lived amongst mixed company. They can only dream of uh, the purity that was enjoyed closer to Jerusalem. You see this in certainly not as significant of ways. This is something that predates my life, but the sense that I get is back in the day when uh, South Holland was the way that it was several decades ago as a, as a super Dutch stronghold, the town that I came from, Lansing, was perhaps looked upon as um, not quite the Dutch stronghold that Lansing was. We're sort of more backwoods country type folk, a little bit more of mixed company. And all of your suspicions of that, if that was your feeling, all of your suspicions have been confirmed and that you're now pastored by a Norwegian from Lansing. Right? So all of your suspicions have been proved true. But there was a purity in Judea and they looked up to Galilee and they said, uh, that is kind of mixed company and because of that, there was a lot of disdain for it. Matthew says that Jesus is up there fulfilling, and he fulfills prophecy. And it tells us that Jesus is the savior of the world. He is not going to be a savior just for those of ethnic Jewish descent. He is going to be the savior of both Jews and Gentiles. And this great promise is something to rejoice in. That We see that Christ is to be proclaimed in every corner of the earth. And as you look forward to all of the the heavenly visions that we have in the New Testament. And what we can look forward to is that God is uh, preserving and saving a people from every corner of the world. And that becomes our foundational identity. We'll talk about that a little bit later this morning. But our foundational identity is the family of God being joined together uh, by the grace of Jesus Christ. And uh, Isaiah 9, you have these pictures of light and darkness, that the, the light of Christ is shining there in the land of the Gentiles. Some people say that in this phase of ministry, Jesus was up in Galilee, but he's still only ministering to the Jews up there. And, it, and that seems to go against the flow of this passage. Matthew is pointing this out to say Jesus is doing good, he's healing, he's proclaiming to both Jews and Gentiles alike. What is Jesus proclaiming? Well, it's exactly what John the Baptist uh, proclaimed back in Matthew 3, verse 2. He says the exact same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does this mean? It's an announcement. It's a proclamation. The kingdom is near. We know that, in a sense, the kingdom was present in Jesus' life because Jesus is the king. One of my professors would say it this way. And we think about, what is the kingdom of God? How do we understand it? And he would say this, if you want to understand the kingdom, keep your eyes on the king. And so we see how it is progressively revealed and yet always there in some way. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was present and active in that Christ was typified in shadows of the gospel, in that uh, the covenant of grace was active amongst the people of God, but there was a, a large step that needed to, be take when, needed to be taken when Christ came to earth. And so in the time of Jesus' earthly life, the kingdom is present where Jesus goes and where he establishes that kingdom, extending forgiveness of sins and giving glimpses of what his kingdom does as he heals the sick and as he extends his grace and compassion. The kingdom is present now 
in our lives. It is present now in and through the work of the Spirit and in the life of the church. Jesus is ascended to heaven. In his human nature, he is in heaven. But his power is known and realized, and it goes forth by the power of the Spirit. Those who recognize the reign of Christ and live in light of it come to share in the kingdom. But Jesus will come again. And so uh, the kingdom is present now, but there is a sense in which it is yet to be consummated. Jesus will come again, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. And the glory of that kingdom will have no end. So it's, it's known, and it's revealed in stages, and we can see how Jesus Christ teaches us about the progression of the kingdom. There's a presence, then, of the kingdom of God. So what is to be the way that we chiefly respond? Jesus declares that the kingdom of God is near. In other words, there's nothing that we can do to stop this kingdom from coming. There's nothing that we can do. We're simply called to recognize it. But a lot of the discussions about what we do in light of that can operate around this idea of building the kingdom. The the kingdom is ours to build. Now, there may be aspects of that that I think are good to highlight, but one of the dangers of that language that we are building the kingdom, is that it tends to go against the language that Scripture gives to us. And what happens is that we tend to bring our earthly endeavors into the realm of building the kingdom. And say, we, kinda, we do this on earth, and this is kind of one and the same with building the kingdom. This has been the big problem over the last 150, even more years, of liberal Christianity. Uh, They talk about building the kingdom, but it's all about their earthly endeavors. So to give an example, Jesus says in John chapter 15, My peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. Some have used this emphasis on peace in the teaching of Jesus to say that all Christians need to be against all kinds of war. There is no just war in the kingdom of God. We all need to be pacifists. We all need to uh, resist this idea that we could serve as soldiers so that we could work for the good of a nation. We take that teaching, we bring it down to earth. Probably more recent issues in the last couple of decades, uh, some people say that building the kingdom is uh, sort of joining our efforts together in something like global warming. So there was a piece of literature put out by our denomination in the past few years talking about global warming in Bangladesh, saying that that is a threat to the peace that Jesus promises in John 15. But if that were true, then it would, become, it would be incumbent upon all of us, would it not, to give all of our efforts into solving that problem. Now, that may be a problem that we should explore and we should try to find a solution, but that is not what Jesus is talking about here. When Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, he's talking about the peace that comes from his salvation. He's talking about the peace of being reconciled to God and knowing him in and by his grace and his kingdom. And so rather than the idea of building the kingdom being the primary way that we think about it, the words of scripture tell us to do these kinds of things. In regards to the kingdom. First, we are to recognize the kingdom, as we see in our passage today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is coming, and there's nothing we can do to prevent it, but we can recognize it. We are to seek the kingdom, 
Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. We are to proclaim and announce the kingdom. This is one of the primary works of the church, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Proclaim as you go, Jesus says to his disciples, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are to receive the kingdom. We are to enter the kingdom. Luke 18 says, truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We can find the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I heard Pastor Kevin DeYoung say this recently and I thought it was very helpful. He said this about the kingdom of God. I'll share it with you. The kingdom of God is like the sun. We don't build the sun. We don't produce the warmth of the sun. But we can recognize it. We can live in its light we can go out to live in the light of the sun we can feel its warmth and we can even call others to recognize it and live in light of it too so recognizing all of this it allows us to see our place we recognize the nearness of the kingdom we seek to go live in light of it we seek to say this is the reality that things are going to happen the way that Jesus says. So our call then becomes to receive the kingdom. How? Through repentance. First and foremost, through repentance, as Jesus says. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does repentance highlight? Well, many things, but a couple of things in regards to the kingdom of God. First, I need a savior. I need to be saved from my sin. And secondly, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. There will come a day when I stand before the final judge, the final king, and I will give an answer. And because that day is coming, I'm going to live in light of the kingdom of God. So our call is to receive this kingdom, to recognize its reality through repentance. J.C. Ryle says this in regards to this passage. Let us notice the first doctrine which the Lord Jesus proclaimed to the world. He began by saying, repent. The necessity of repentance is one of the great foundations which lie at the very bottom of Christianity. It needs to be pressed on all mankind without exception. High or low, rich or poor, all have sinned and are guilty before God. And all must repent and be converted if they would be saved. And true repentance is no light matter. It is a thorough change of heart about sin. A change showing itself in godly sorrow and humiliation, in heartfelt confession before the throne of grace, in a complete breaking off from sinful habits and an abiding hatred of all sin. Such repentance is the inseparable companion of saving faith in Christ. Let us prize the doctrine highly. It is of highest importance. No Christian teaching can be called sound which does not constantly bring forward repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord, Jesus Christ. We recognize the kingdom. We see the necessity of repentance, for we all need a savior. need to be saved from our sins, and judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. So after we recognize, secondly, we live by the call of the kingdom through self-denial and submission. Self-denial and submission. This is the call of the kingdom. The next part of this passage, 
gives us the calling of four of Jesus' 12 closest disciples, 11 of whom become the apostles of the New Testament church. Jesus summons them with authority. Follow me, he says. That day, in that day, if you were going to study the Jewish law, you were able to choose your rabbi. Almost like today in uh, church life in America, a lot of people are able to choose their pastor, right? Go from church to church. Jesus calls them with authority. He summons them. He says, follow me, because he has that authority. It's likely that all four of these men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all were already followers of Jesus. But here Jesus places a, a greater responsibility upon them. He's calling them to a distinct purpose, training in order to carry out his work. So Jesus says he's going to make them fishers of men, and he calls them to follow him. What does this interesting phrase, fishers of men, mean? Jesus says this in order to relate to their current vocation. They are fishermen, so that's obviously one of the reasons why Jesus is using this as a phrase. He's saying, I'm going to make you fishers of men. In other words, there's a a greater purpose that I have for you. You You are doing this, you're providing for your family, but I have something that is a greater purpose for you. And that is not... Uh, to say that fishermen were despised or had dishonorable work. In fact, we have evidence from the Gospels that some of the apostles were were doing fairly well, that they did have uh, good means and were providing well for their families. Jesus is not uh, putting any disdain upon their work. He's saying, there's something I have carved out for you, a purpose, and it has to do with the kingdom of God. The image of the fishers of men is, is often what we usually think about, And that is that the work that the disciples will be doing, the twelve will be doing, is to catch others up in recognizing the truth of this kingdom. So so they follow Jesus right away. And the idea is that they will be doing the same thing. Calling others to say, look, this is the Christ. This is the king. This is the judge. Follow him and listen to him. So they follow Jesus. And this is because... This is most basic to being a disciple of Christ, following him. It's not just the 12 who are called to follow him. Our great call as his children, as those who have recognized the truth of this kingdom, our call is to follow Jesus. We read in Matthew chapter 9, the calling of Matthew. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 1 Peter chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. All of us are called to follow Jesus. 1 John 2, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Walk like Jesus. We read this today. Walk in love, Ephesians 5, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What are the characteristics of a follower of Jesus? James Boyce gives five. I'll share them with you quickly. First is obedience. Followers of Jesus have have lives marked by obedience. Boyce says this, Those who are truly Christ's sheep both hear and obey his call from the beginning and thus enter a life in which obedience is a chief characteristic. Not perfect, not airtight, not seamless, but a life marked by obedience. As we talked about already today, repentance. 
repentance. Boyce makes the point to say, how could it be otherwise? You're following the Holy Son of God, the one who has never turned to the right or the left or made anything, any kind of sinful action or sinful thoughts. Anyone who is following him, he says, must by definition turn his back to sin and set his face towards righteousness. And that's a lifelong practice. Followers of Jesus submit to him. Submit to him. Why? Because he proclaims proclaims himself to be king and lord. And if we believe that, we will live in light of its truth. So we will submit to him. Followers of Jesus trust him. We trust him. If we trust Christ's words, we can do no other but follow him. Followers of Jesus persevere. Following is not a once-for-all act, but a lifetime commitment only fulfilled when the race is won. So the call of the kingdom that we see put on these four men is then put on all of us. We are called to follow Jesus, to take up our cross, to follow him. And we do that by bringing everything in our lives in subjection to Jesus Christ. Everything in our lives is to be brought into subjection to him. We see it given to us in the passage. We are to bring our fortunes, our callings, our jobs, even our families in subjection to this king. All of those things can be good and may be good in various ways. Some of the best things that we can know, but each and every one of them must fall under our love and devotion and commitment to our king. We must seek Christ and his kingdom more than money, more than our jobs. We must love him more than our families because it is only in doing that that we can love our families rightly. When you have those loves out of order, you, for, for instance, if you idolize the family and you have those orders in your heart uh, out of not rightly ordered, then uh, you will run into all kinds of problems with the way that you love them. But if you love Christ first and you bring all things in subjection to him, he enlarges your heart to be able to love your family more than you would have in the first place. That's the beauty of bringing all things in subjection to him. He fits us to be able to do things better than we would if we had those loves out of order. It also means, to bring this to contemporary issues, that Christ is the most important thing about our identity. He defines who we are. So we live in a world of identity politics. You've probably heard that phrase. And what we do is we need to make sure that we own, that we understand, that we communicate, that our identity is in Christ. And everything about us must serve that. The passions of our ethnic tribes must be subservient to Christ in a day when we talk about those collective identities so much. Our sexual selves must be subservient to Christ. How we think about these issues must be in conformity with his moral law. And we must not think about sexual identities as being more basic to who we are than being defined first and foremost by the king and his kingdom. Our politics must be subservient to Christ. We first and foremost are citizens of his kingdom. We can turn almost anything in this world into an idol. And that happens when we make Christ and his word, his commandments, bow down to something else. The call of the kingdom is to bring all things in subjection to him. Just like we see in these disciples' 
we are then finally, that's a, a, a big call upon us. And so the hope that we have is something that we see at the end of the passage. We're empowered by the grace of the kingdom through faith. We end by once again seeing Jesus is going throughout Galilee. A wonderful picture of his compassion and his love and his power and his grace. He's healing and people are bringing uh, the sick to him and the afflicted and he's healing them. And they're bringing more and he's healing more. And the, the, the news of who he is and what he's doing is spreading throughout all of Palestine. You see, even people down in Jerusalem and Judea are hearing the reports of this and they are beginning to follow Jesus. News about him is spreading, but there is two little English words. It's one word in Greek. Towards the end of the passage, Jesus, he said, it's not just said that he is preaching, he is preaching good news. Good news. Now, when we talk about the call of the kingdom, when we talk about coming judgment, we talk about this enormous call upon our lives, we can say, boy, that, that's, that's a high bar, isn't it? But the kingdom is good news. It is a joyous proclamation. It is something that, when it is said, brings about the kinds of things that accompany good news. Celebration, peace, and joy. And what we see is, in the, this picture of the, the last part of this passage, is grace saving as prior action. God saves by his grace. His compassion comes to meet us. His love comes to meet us. He heals us and allows us to be able to live according to the call of this kingdom, to live in the light of this kingdom. The good news is found in Jesus' compassion for the lost and the sick and the hurting. It is found in his love for both Jew and Gentile. It is found in the fact that he loves his creation enough that he is not willing to see it languish under the curse forever, but he heals, and he restores, and he makes new, and he will make all things new again. The kingdom is good news because it is a kingdom of grace. It is a gift of faith. All of the things that attend the call of the kingdom, self-denial, submission, obedience, they are granted by the power of the one who makes the call. So trust the king. He will give us the gifts of grace to live according to this call. It begins with the cross. This was what the apostles came to understand. So first, Peter says at the end of his life in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We are to die to sin and live to righteousness. But where does that begin? It begins with the cross. It begins with something that happens before us. Something that uh, was in the decree of God before the world came into existence. Something that took place before you were born. Something that took place before you knew about your sin. Something that took place before you knew you needed to be saved. This is the life of faith. And there's a great warning that attends this passage too. Jesus' fame is spreading, largely, probably, because in the hearts of many, because when Jesus does these great signs, you can start to see these signs as ends in themselves. Well, this guy can make my earthly life a lot more comfortable. Jesus does all that he does in order to say, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not a world of deterioration, of disease, of sickness. 
His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness and life and peace and joy. And that's accepted upon faith. Those who saw Jesus heal in this way, what were they called to believe? They were called to believe the truth of the kingdom. To bring their life in submission to it. To believe that the kingdom was not of this world. So you give it all to follow him because you say it is supremely worth it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Follow the king. Why? Because it is wise. But the great hope of grace is that grace goes before us. Grace empowers us. Grace renews us. Psalm 119 says this. I will run in the way of your commandments When you enlarge my heart. I will do it. The psalmist says. When you enable me. To do it. And that's what God does. By his grace. That's good news. We could not do it on our own. We could not leave it all behind. We could not bring everything in subjection to him. In and of our own power. And strength. But when we see the grace. We come to live in the light of the warmth of this kingdom. Knowing that we do not produce that warmth. But we can step out into it and live in its life. And God comes and heals us by his grace. Towering above every human life is Christ and his kingdom. Align your life with this reality. Recognize it. Follow Jesus. And live by his grace. James Boyce says this. Words that both encourage us and remind us to be attentive to take these things seriously. He says, the world is equally dark today, comparing it to the darkness in Galilee. The light of the gospel has been unveiled by God's grace, but men and women continue to prefer the darkness to God's light. If you are one of them, now is the time to repent of your sin, take up your cross, and begin to follow Jesus Christ daily. Where is Christ's kingdom? The kingdom is here, but judgment is just around the corner. You will not escape judgment in that coming day. If you turn your back on the king now. Let's pray. Oh great God, we humbly look to you and your word. Ask that you allow by your grace for us to understand these words by your spirit. Illumine them uh, to our hearts. Allow us to reflect on them today and begin to live In light of them, make us what we are not, always and only by your grace. And we thank you for the gift of of Christ, the King. And may we always recognize the reality of who he is and, and how we are to live according to this call as we understand you are doing it in us. In Jesus' name, amen.